Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to start us off by reading out of James chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? It's really good to see you. Um, any, uh, any dads out there solo parenting while their wife was at a uh, retreat this weekend? Or maybe just solo parenting in general. Uh, that was me, and guess what? Uh, not only was I solo parenting, I got to take three children to a birthday party at Sky Zone yesterday. So I am recovering still um, from the weekend, but hey. And then this morning, I, got, I get up every Sunday morning very early, so I was up at like four o'clock, and uh, I was out of coffee. So we're already starting at a deficit. If I'm a little on edge, it's probably because of that, but uh, just kidding. Um, if you are new this morning, I just want to say you're welcome. We're really glad you're here. My name is Marshall. I'm the lead pastor of this church, along with a few other people. We, we really uh, give leadership to this community, and we're really glad you're here. It was a crisp and foggy spring day in late March 2020, and I'm standing outside of a Home Depot in Portland, Oregon, waiting in line, because that's what you had to do to go for my turn to be able to go inside and get what I need. I'm wearing a thick army canvas mask that is crushing my nose and uh, keeping me from being able to breathe. I'm wearing nitrile gloves on my hands. I have safety glasses on my face. And I am standing the appropriate six feet away from the person who is in front of me. But I'm beginning to feel this tension in my shoulders and anxiety in my body because some yahoo behind me is not following the instructions, is breathing down my neck. Some big construction dude with no mask to say nothing of not wearing goggles or gloves. And I'm angry. I'm fuming. I am ready to yell at this dude at, like if he bumps into me, I'm ready to throw down. The metaphorical and literal gloves are about to come off. And just then, the silence is broken as a couple begins to walk up to the door where there is an older employee standing there with a walkie-talkie, allowing the next person into the store at, when they get the all-clear from the person at the exit. And as this couple is walking towards the store, they try to blow right past this employee, and they get stopped uh, to say that, no, there's a line, and uh, society has rules. It's the only thing that is keeping us from descending into Lord of the Flies chaos. And, <clears throat> and this couple, they begin to yell at this older woman, 
about how the coronavirus is fake, it's a Chinese conspiracy, blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And the line of people that are, that are waiting uh, jump to this woman's rescue and begin screaming obscenities at this couple uh, back and forth without a shred of respect for the dignity of the other person. And in that moment, I began to see that we were collectively cracking. The pressure of a few weeks of lockdown was bringing us to our basest animal instincts. And so the manager comes out to the rescue of his employee with a look on his face saying that he has to deal with this practically every hour. And then he summarily dismisses these rule breakers, asking them not to return without a mask. And as this couple leaves with uh, you know, a few last insults, the line around me begins to applaud and cheer. Ironically, even the maskless construction dude behind me. <laughs> and I'm embarrassed to admit that I was among the self-righteous gloaters. Now, I can feel you pulling away from me right now and rolling your eyes. <laughs> Because here we are, another reference to 2020. Like, can't we just move on? Well, I have the microphone, and I'm clearly still working through some things. So you guys just got to deal with it. Now, this couple was angry at the sight of a line full of people who had been duped into believing that the nose-crushing masks and the gloves and the goggles were somehow going to be able to save them. In fact, they probably were sneering at the fact that we also self-righteously knew that our masks and gloves and goggles and everything else were not just going to save us, but were going to save the world. We were doing the right thing. And the line of supposed sheeple were furious with this couple who had been deceived by some crazy conspiracy theory propaganda. And everyone was self-righteous and everyone was convinced in that moment of their rightness. Now here we are almost three years later into the future and we know that both groups were wrong, at least on some of these things, right? We were all doing the best we could with gravely incomplete information. And, but we, and we all felt the fury to our bones and we were all convinced that what we were doing was not only good, it was morally correct. And yeah, I could have used a dozen other more benign examples of people's self-deception, like the way so many people have been duped into believing the Lord of the Rings movies are good, or that baseball is interesting. And no doubt, many of you are already upset, apparently. But the truth is, the pressure of the last few years has brought about such a level of collective outrage and most of us are still experiencing it somewhere in our bodies, much less our psyches. Maybe a better way of saying it is that the pressure revealed some stuff that was in us. So in that moment when I was at Home Depot, some of the very real junk that was in my heart that had been buried under a veneer of polite and quiet Christianity was beginning to surface. And it was exposing what was really under my skin. There was a, a gap in my discipleship had been revealed through the pressure. And the question is, what would I then do with what I saw? And I knew this gap was there. But like the text that we're in this morning in the book of James, it, it says that I would face it for a moment, but then I would walk away and I would forget what I looked like. And the same anger and annoyance with other people that happened in that moment would invariably rise to the surface time and time again at family get-togethers 
or even during leadership team meetings here at church to say nothing of those short fuse experiences in traffic or at the grocery store. And my, transform, my transformation was being stunted by a surreptitious lie that I believed in nearly every circumstance. I don't need to change because I'm right. Last week, we started a new series uh, studying the book of James, which was a letter that was written by Jesus's brother, a guy named Jacob, that speaks to a group of followers of Jesus about what it means to live lives of robust discipleship in the midst of suffering and hardship. And this morning's text that we're examining, it speaks to one of the most insidious things in all of our lives, which is deception, specifically self-deception and pride. Now, Self-deception is one of the greatest hindrances to us becoming mature followers of Jesus. And confronting our own self-deception with the truth of God's word is central to what it is to practice what we're calling robust discipleship. And see, the, the, the root of all human sin begins in deception. It's, and this is woven throughout the whole of the Bible. In fact, the very first sin that was ever committed that unleashed a force of evil throughout the whole of creation. It began with a deception. A serpent in Genesis 3 deceived the first woman and led her to transgress, and everything fell apart from there. But see, deception is not something that is limited you know, to just being fooled by others or by spiritual forces that are trying to trick us. The Bible is clear that one of the greatest deceivers in each and every one of our lives is ourselves. We lie to ourselves constantly. And the warning in the Bible is to resist our self-deception by being people of the truth. In 1 John 1, we read this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or again, in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul writes, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Skip down to verse 7 in Galatians 6. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And so when we come to the first chapter of the book of James, we see this theme again repeated in verse 16, just before the text that we read this morning. Uh, he writes, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And then again, in verse 22, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. And then again, verse 26, he says, those who consider themselves religious, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. There's a theme here. There is a, a repetition here. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. You've got to be joking. That's not real. Get real, people. That's what James is saying to us. When you are studying a passage of Scripture and you're trying to understand what it is that the passage is trying to, to speak to you, one of the best ways to do it is to just see what words are being repeated throughout sort of the context of this message. Right here we see the idea of deception is at the core. And as we mentioned last week, James is writing to a church that is experiencing extreme pressure. In addition to all of this religious and political persecution that the church is facing, people are being martyred, people are being dragged off to jail, families are coming against their loved ones because they've 
because of conversion to Christ. In addition to all of that, there is a famine in the land, and the early believers were largely people who did not have much means. So they're facing political and religious persecution. They're facing very harsh difficulty of not having food to eat to be able to feed their children. And when we're under such pressure, it's easy for self-deception to begin to twist our brains, to always see ourselves as, as right and others as wrong, that my pain and the difficulty of my circumstances has to be someone else's fault or something else's fault. And self-deception, then it, it begins to take root in our lives and it drives us towards conflict with other people. And so this is what James writes in verse 19. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, in the face of all this pressure and everything that you're going through, all the suffering that you are dealing with, all of the division that is threatening the church, all of this stuff that is making life very difficult for you right now, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all of this moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word that is planted in you, which can save you. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Three principles that are at the core of our society today, right? <laughs> right. This is the exact opposite of how our media world works today. Like, just scroll through the comments section of any video on YouTube. Like, like look at how to change a battery in your car, and you will see the most vile language in, hum in the human language in the comments section underneath it. Am I right? Yeah. Don't go there. It's dangerous. Our 24-hour news media is, traffics in outrage and jumping to conclusions our brains are constantly being wired towards being easily triggered or offended, quick to react, and really, really slow to listen to another point of view. And so no wonder, this is like the, the, the air that we breathe, this is sort of the, the water that we swim in all around us, even if we aren't intentionally taking that stuff in, it's just the mood that we live surrounded by, and no wonder that this begins to take its toll on our relationships. How many conflicts of the conflicts that you have with another person would be easily disappeared if instead of reacting, you first took time to listen. Like really listen. Like really not just hear their words, but hear their heart and assume that their motivations aren't pure evil. How many conflicts would dial back if you were slow to speak? Like not just half listening, waiting for your opportunity to respond, but what if, you, what if you didn't need to get the last word and you let somebody else finish the conversation? Think about a conflict that you've had with somebody recently. Uh, it could be a coworker or a neighbor or maybe somebody in your small group or at church. Or if you're having a hard time thinking about somebody, just picture with me the glory of the Thanksgiving table next month and who you are least excited to see. You guys don't have those relationships at your Thanksgiving table. <laughs> now, in your conflict with that person, are you convinced that you're right? Like, if only they would listen to you and see it from, from your perspective, they would see that they are, in fact, wrong? And could it be that perhaps the other person might think the same thing about you? 
Like it's a rare person who knows they're wrong but digs in their heels and keeps fighting anyway. Those people do exist. I'm one of them. (laughs) But James says that our human anger cannot produce the righteousness that God requires. In fact, he calls this kind of anger moral filth. And he says that it keeps us from being able to receive the word of truth. See, human anger, it is selfish. It's about getting what I deserve. Human anger is about my vindication, and it keeps us from being able to see others the way that God sees them. And it's rooted in self-deception. Listen first. Talk less. Calm down. You see, Jesus says, later, or says earlier in his Sermon on the Mount that this kind of anger, it, it ends up in dehumanizing other people. And that God takes that very seriously. Anger becomes hatred, and hatred becomes murder, is what Jesus says in his sermon. Or another summary of it would be Yoda, who said, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Resist the outrage and instead receive the word that is planted in you. Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. Don't be deceived Don't deceive yourselves by merely listening to the word. Now, in our world today, I think that this is, again, a word for our moment in ways that it hasn't been throughout the rest of human history. We live in a time that is content-heavy and content-driven. You get a high just by listening to a good idea or an inspiring talk. It gives you all of the chemical reward in your brain without having had to do anything. And this is a deception. If you think back over the last couple of years and you see the way that people became so outraged, believing that what they think about a certain situation, whether it's racial inequality and injustice or or it's coronavirus things or it's the election or anything else like that, you take in this information, you take it all in, and it just like, it feeds something primal in you. It actually feeds sort of the chemical reward centers in your brain And so you don't have to have taken any action. You don't have to have changed any of your relationships. You don't have to have given any money or contributed to the cause or marched with anybody for you to feel the same self-righteous high of just simply taking in the right kind of content and the right worldview. Isn't that weird, the way that we are wired? And so when you listen to the word, but you don't follow through with action, he says it's like looking into a mirror and you enjoy it. You see yourself. You know, maybe you do your hair a little bit, but then you walk away and you completely forget what you look like. And in the ancient world, they didn't have mirrors like we have today. They instead had to use highly polished dishes that made commonly out of bronze where you couldn't just glance at yourself in a mirror. You had to really look at it. You had to really see it. And he's saying, imagine really, really looking, looking intently at yourself, but then walking away, completely forgetting what you look like. And in verse 23, the NIV translates part of this verse actually somewhat poorly. Other translations say it like this. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. 
The idea of the natural face, it comes from the Greek word genesis, which refers to the true origin of the person. So some scholars say that what James is talking about here is that a person who listens to the word but doesn't do it is like someone who really carefully considers who God has made them to be, like their true created purpose and design, but doesn't allow it to shape their lives in any way. They peer into the beauty of God's kingdom, God's shalom, how he intends everything to be. Maybe they even get flutters of emotion at the beauty of what that could be like. And then they go about their day forgetting that this kingdom life is accessible in even the most mundane situations and moments in our lives. And not only does it refer to sort of the good, good intentions of God's creation, it also infers peering into the genesis of our brokenness. The moment that humans turned away from God towards sin, fracturing our humanity. He says that anyone who hears God's words but doesn't put them into action is like someone who looks at everything that is wrong with themselves but doesn't do anything about it. It's noticing the food that's stuck in your teeth and not picking it out. It's seeing the booger that is hanging out of your nose and not pulling it out and just going about your day as if it's not there. It's reading scripture in the early hours with a cup of coffee, enjoying this serene moment with God, the peace uh, that God promises us as we draw near in his, to his presence, and then an hour later, muttering cuss words under your breath as you're stuck in traffic on your way to work. It's having a ministry moment here at church, coming forward to receive prayer, getting a prophetic word that encourages and spurs you on towards the next really good thing, and then getting in an argument with your spouse on the way home. It's praying a psalm over your children at bedtime and then yelling at them to get back into bed 10 minutes later because you need a bedtime snack now? <laughs> Sorry, I'm speaking my own experience there. It's seeing the judgment and anger in your heart and seeing it manifest in all of these people outside of a Home Depot in 2020 and then applauding with them when some fool gets their comeuppance. Don't just hear the word. Do what it says. Like, let it actually take root in you. Put it into practice. And that is, of course, not to say that we should expect that every time we read God's word, it should automatically change the way that we live our lives, that we should be perfect as soon as we, we walk away from, from our closed Bible. No, formation obviously is very slow work. It happens gradually over time. But this is why we need to read scripture every day. We need to marinate in it. We need to let it get into us so that we're transformed. In fact, Romans 12 says that transformation happens very slowly over time as our minds are renewed by God's word. But James would say that God's word doesn't need to be just marinated in. It needs to be exercised. It needs to be practiced. It has implications for each and every one of our days. If all we do is take in a verse of the day or we listen to a sermon during our commute and then we simply move on and we live the rest of our lives however we want, he says we are living in self-deception. And James says that the person who lives what they see in God's word, the person who puts it into practice, they will experience a life of blessing. But what does that obedient and blessed life look like? Well, verse 26, he goes on. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves. There it is again. And their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James is saying that the, the life of obedience, the blessed life, is one that stops talking and starts doing. He's, he's, he's confronting now something that's really common in, in sort of religious circles today, which is having the right religious phrases or being able to speak the party line or sounding pious to others. He says all of this is cheap and worthless to God. He says that you can be a hearer or even a reciter of the truth and still not live the truth. You can talk about justice and care for the poor and do nothing about it. And God sees those words as empty. Here's the thing, again, about how our brains work. Just talking about something lights up the reward centers as if you've actually done it. It's a self-deception. And so you might think that you're really faithful because you know what to say, because you've read the right books, you listen to the right podcasts, you know the right theology, and you can be the person with the last word in life group every time. You know exactly what to say. And James would say, such a life is worthless, worthless, empty, deceived. You could marinate in scripture and be able to quote it, and he would say, you're still deceived. If you want to live in the truth, here's what that looks like. Doing the stuff. And James doesn't let us off the hook by, saying, by, by inferring that you know, living a life of inner peace that's inspired by the word of God or being a little bit more moral out of obedience to the word, like that's, what he, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you wanna know what real, true faithfulness to God looks like? He says it means justice and holiness. That true religion is caring for the orphan and the widow in their distress. True religion is worked out in the way we respond to the vulnerable and the oppressed. Faithfulness to God is costly for each one of us. It means joining God in his justice, in his justice work in the world. It's serving the lonely. It's opening your home to the foster child. It's sponsoring children with Compassion International or One Child Matters. It's visiting the shut-in and reading to them and praying with them. It's serving the refugee families in our community. True, true religion doesn't happen by accident. It's very intentional. And true religion is about pursuing holiness. It's keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. It's resisting the pull to call, to call things that God deems detestable good. See, growing up in church, any church kids in the room? Grew up in church, handful of us. Growing up in church, much of what I understood to be holiness was really about just avoiding certain kinds of entertainment, and not saying bad words. And the person who determined which entertainment was appropriate was Dr. James Dobson, and I'll never forgive him. <laughs> Church kids think that's funny. It was about not using drugs or having sex outside of marriage. And no doubt, these things are, are important in James' admonition to not be polluted by the world. But I think that in many ways, Christians today are being polluted by worldliness through what kinds of particularly social media and news media that we're taking in. We're letting our values be determined not just by watching sort of inappropriate sitcoms, but by watching inappropriate outrage on our social media feeds and in our 24-hour news cycles. Our minds, they start to get really tangled up by worldly pursuits as we try to keep up with other people's highlight reels on Instagram 
or how we become enraged over the dumbest controversies as we consume news media. I could split the room by stating a fact, the new Little Mermaid is black. Isn't that a stupid controversy? And it's, sorry, if you're upset about that, come and talk to me later, I'll pray for you. Which brings us full circle. That's such a dumb thing, I'm sorry. Which brings us full circle back to the beginning of the text. I should probably have not spoken so quickly and been so quick to anger just now. I'm sorry. Full circle, be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. Don't be deceived by only hearing the truth and not putting it into practice. Don't use religious language to impress others and make yourself feel more spiritual. Instead, obey God's word. Do justice. Leave anger and malice and the pollution of the world behind. A couple of years ago, um, I, was, uh, I was talking with a friend of mine um, after we were playing some Ultimate Frisbee. And, um, and he, this friend of mine, he's not a follower of Jesus at all. And he was getting so angry while we chatted. Like he just needed, like something was just erupting out of him. All of this pent up frustration. He was beginning to crack. And he said, Marshall, how dare you be a pastor? How dare you invest your life in sort of all of those hypocrites in the church? You know that those people in your church are racists, right? You know that they're xenophobes that hate immigrants and refugees, right? You know that they're misogynists and they're homophobes and everything else, right? How can you stand people who voted for such and such person? And I listened to him, and he was furious, and he was just getting more and more angry as he spoke. And something that was in him was, that was real was coming out. And after he had said his piece, I, I, just, I didn't answer with any rationalizations. All I did was just tell him about some of my friends who are part of this church. I talked about some of the stuff that our people were doing in our community. I talked about my friends Matt and Jody Petrell and how they know their neighbors and they serve them in meaningful and practical ways. At the time, uh, I talked about my friends Jace and Michaela Schwartz and how they were essentially pastoring a group of young adults uh, uh, through regular Bible studies and that they had decided that they were going to adopt a refugee family in East Portland and help care for them. I shared about my friends Aaron and Bethany Benton and how they felt convicted that even though they were having more and more of their own children, that they needed to keep space in their home for children in foster care. I talked about Doug and Julie Effinger, people who were comfortable and successful here in Vancouver and who walked away from a comfortable life and moved to Nicaragua so that they could serve other people. I said that the type of evangelicalism that he was talking about is very different from biblical Christianity. And the people that I share my life with are real Christians. They're not just hear hearers or big talkers. They are meek doers of God's word. But I took it further, because I'm an Enneagram 8. I need to sort of push the envelope a little bit. And then I began to ask him, where are you giving your money to serve the vulnerable and to care for the poor? I asked him kindly if he knew any of his neighbor's names, much less what their physical needs were. I gently pressed him on whether his righteousness was anything more than anger and talk. And he got really quiet. And he said that no one had ever asked him that before. It was a moment of realization. He was self-deceived. In contrast, a few weeks ago, after we finished church, a new couple uh, who was visiting for the first time, they came up to me and they, to say hi, and we chatted a little bit. 
And they told me that they wouldn't consider themselves Christians, but that they really liked this church. Um, that uh, they were involved with some stuff at Hudson's Bay, and they had observed the way that this church was was uh, contributing to caring for uh, students and the rest of the neighborhood. And they said to me something really interesting. They said, uh, even though we wouldn't consider ourselves church people, um, you guys really believe what you say you believe. You live it. And that was the best compliment I've ever received in all of my years of serving the church. And look, friends, we are imperfect And we have a long way to go in how effective we can be at really meeting the needs of this neighborhood and sharing the truth of God's word, sharing the gospel and bringing people into a saving relationship with Jesus. But I love this little community that God has given us because this is a small community of authentic followers of Jesus who do what we see in the word of God. And this life, this life of faithfulness is really hard And the words of James do not let us off the hook, even though I want to celebrate all the good stuff. The truth is, we all have room to grow. And life, it ebbs and flows. There are seasons where you go for it, and there are seasons where it's harder. The the pull towards a shallow or non-practicing expression of Christianity is constant. Life gets in the way, comfort creeps in, finances get tight, and living the sacrificial call of Jesus It begins to fall by the wayside. You see, James didn't write to all of these churches experiencing a famine, this harsh correction to say, I know life's hard, but you suck. He's saying, life is hard, don't give up. Keep going. And I believe that Jesus is inviting us to more. And if you're in that space right now, like I am, of constantly feeling this this tension of caring for your family, of living in such a way that there is stability in your home, and also committing radically to the mission of Jesus, of living in Sabbath rest, an easy yoke and a light burden, at the same time carrying your cross daily. If you're living in that tension with me, be of good cheer. We're in it together, right? That's what the church is. So let's do the stuff. Let's do the stuff together. Amen?